Jones. Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles, overanalyzes Ghostbusters. We break it down minute by minute. And I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And today we have an awesome guest here on the line. We have Mr. Mark Landry. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm great, guys. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited. Uh, it's our pleasure. Now, uh, just to show how the sausage is made, when we announced this, uh, I guess, a few weeks ago, we got an email from you, Mark, saying that you were inviting yourself on the show, and, <laughs> which, is, which is funny that you did that because we had a list of people we wanted to have on the show, and your name was absolutely right there in the top five people. that like. Um, but to let people know why you are a guy who uh, is well-equipped to be on the show, can you tell us a little bit about you your involvement in the film industry, and uh, some of the other projects you have going on right now. Sure. Uh, thanks. So first of all, just uh, want to give you guys, like, your love. Like, a, you are two of my favorite people, and, uh, I, you know, we were friends in college, and, uh, and uh, I really miss, you know, hanging out with you guys and making movies and stuff. Totally. Um, and just to let everybody know, like, you know, I, I'm from Louisiana and uh, went to LSU with uh, with Kyle and Brady, and we used to make uh, short films, uh, uh, you know, all over town. No, 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 no. You guys made them. I hung out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made that epic Dracula film. And I, I remember that being pretty awesome. Um, so, so anyway, for me, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a filmmaker because of Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters was the film. I was uh, five years old when it came out. And it was the film that, that blew me away and opened my eyes to film being an art form, something you could actually grow up and do, you know. And it, it became really clear to me that, you know, adults make these things, even though, you know, we kids may like them, uh, you can grow up and have a career doing it. So um, that's kind of how I got involved in filmmaking. And um, uh, like I said, I went to LSU and then ended up interning at uh, Lucasfilm on Skywalker Ranch and then going to grad school at USC for film and have written screenplays for uh, a bunch of different companies, you know, a lot of which haven't been made, which you know, happens a lot. Um, but one thing did get made I co-wrote with my friend Vince is a Teen Beach movie for the Disney Channel. Teen um, Beach movie, which was uh, no small task. That show was a massive hit. It, it was it was a lot of fun, and and they made a sequel, and um, and we're you know hopefully gonna do something else with them in the future. Um, so I did that, and then I wrote uh, a comic book that's set in Louisiana, a graphic novel uh, called Bloodthirsty: One Nation Underwater, and that's a post-Katrina uh, story about a, a rescue swimmer from the Coast Guard who uh, uncovers a an insidious plot uh, by basically vampires to um, to use the coming next storm, the next Katrina-type event, to cover out a bunch of people together and steal their blood. Spoiler alert. Uh, anyway, so yeah, that these are some of the and I have some other projects going on. Uh, another screenplay that's a vampire script, and um, uh, hopefully, you know, I'll be able to talk about more of those things as I come back for more minutes because I'm pumped to do that. Yes, sir. I got to tell you, I, I've never been more disappointed in my life than when I thought that you had named the character Brady in Teen Beach Movie after me, only to find out that you hadn't. And uh, I retreated from society and, you know, tried to hide my tears from the world. 
But, Sorry. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Ugh. I'll get over it one day. Sorry. I, I should have done that though, Brady. It, it, it was the it was the universe showing me the error of my ways. It, it, it's it's so funny because like Teen Beach movie, uh, I hadn't seen it when it first came out, but I saw like the ratings for it were like through the roof when it came out. And my wife and I go to Disney World a lot, and we were heading into the park one day, and there was this huge banner for it. And I'm like I'm like poking her. I'm like, hey, my buddy wrote that. My friend wrote that. Like just strangers come by. I'm like, my friend wrote this. And fast forward a few years later. Um, uh, uh, Brady has a, a date with a young lady, and we're talking about you know uh, friends of ours and stuff like that. And she mentions Teen Beach movie, and we're like, oh yeah, we know the dude who wrote oh, yeah. it. Her jaw like hit the floor. She was like, <laughs> what? All right, well if you guys are ready, uh, do you want to go ahead and jump into minute number twenty-eight, and we can overanalyze the heck out of this thing? Yes. Awesome. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, minute number twenty-eight. So previously we had seen Peter Venkman's failed attempts to woo Dana Barrett. Dana has rejected Venkman's attempts and is now pushing him towards the apartment door. And that's where we pick up at minute number twenty-eight. Twenty-eight minutes. Dana Barrett has pushed Venkman through her apartment door. He stops her and pops his head back through the door to ask, "No kiss." Dana shoves his face back through the door and slams it behind him. At twenty-eight oh six, Venkman is now standing alone in the hallway. The sound of Dana's door shutting has alerted Louis Tully, who steps out into the hallway and accidentally locks himself outside of his apartment. At 2812, we cut to the Ghostbusters headquarters at the Ladder Number 8 Fire Department. It is nighttime, and the street is slick with rain. At 2815, Vinkman raises a beer and toasts to their first customer. Ray seconds the toast and adds to our first and only customer. The three Ghostbusters are eating Chinese food. Ray and Vinkman are drinking Budweiser, while Egon drinks a Coke as he repairs a particle thrower. At 2823, Vinkman tells Ray that he will need to withdraw from the petty cash in order to take Dana out for dinner. You know, in order to not lose her as a client. Ray informs Venkman that their Chinese takeout represents the last of the petty cash. At 2833, Venkman looks at the food in silence as a phone can be heard ringing downstairs. At 2838, Janine is switching out her work shoes for sneakers as the phone rings. She answers and tells the person on the line, yes, of course they're serious. At 2850, Janine takes notes from the person on the other line. At 2858, Janine tells the person, oh yes, of course, they'll be totally discreet. And that's where we leave minute number 28 of Ghostbusters. So, gentlemen, uh, Mark, so you're a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. This, uh, if, if I'm not correct, this is kind of the, the closing of the first chapter of the Ghostbusters, correct? Uh, yes, yeah, so as a screenwriter, we, we talk in terms of uh, three-act structure typically, and there are those who would say, you know, like Terrence Malick or somebody probably wouldn't, you know, uh, like that. But yeah, Hollywood films are uh, written and uh, come to us through our TV sets and movie screens in a three-act structure format, which basically means this. A movie is so however many minutes long. The first uh, quarter is Act One. The last quarter is Act Three, and then the half in the middle is Act Two. And this scene, in my analysis, anyway, you know, everybody has their own different, you know, flavor of it. But to to my mind, as a screenwriter, this is the final scene of Act One hmm. of Ghostbusters. So we're we're getting. Uh, the curtain is going to fall here at the end of the phone call, and we'll have closed the chapter on the setting up of everything. All the characters are set up, basically the key characters are set up, the key problems are set up. Um, Peter, Peter Venkman, the main character, has promised to solve Dana's problem, which sets up what we call the main tension. That's going to be the main tension of the movie. Can Peter solve her problem and, and win her? Uh, Peter promising to solve Dana's problem is also the culmination of the end uh, of Act One, 
And then Peter talking about wanting her to take uh, take her out on a date sort of cements his romantic goal. Um, and the final uh, the financial revelation that they that they that they talk about in the uh, in the dinner that the Chinese take out that this is the last of the petty cash. And in the original script, I think you guys probably have that uh, dialogue. It's like we're hemorrhaging money or something. Um, so you're basically stating that if they don't get business fast, they're done. So we've set up this whole dream of them being, you know, uh, paranormal eliminators professionally, and it doesn't look like it's going well. Yeah, so this this scene when I watched it originally, that the thing that stuck out the most to me was the fact that they are running out of money, that they have no income at this point. I didn't realize that Peter's purpose was kind of given to him in the previous scene with Dana. I think Brady and I were discussing it the other day that we felt that it was um some of his dialogue we felt kind of like came out of nowhere. And at the time I wasn't thinking long term over the whole script that, you know, she's the he's She's the romantic goal for him to try to get to her, that he was really setting that whole thing up. Yeah, I've never really thought about it like that either. So now that you're saying that this is sort of his promise and everything, it all you know fits a little bit more for me. But whenever he sticks his face back through that door, no kiss. <laughs> I'm, you know, anybody else would just have a face full of mace. Right, you know, right. You know, but, it's um, a little rapey. <laughs> a, little, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So in terms of like this, um, you, you you know that the audience on the surface level, the overt main story of this movie is these guys are going to bust ghosts. But for this character to have um, a secondary layer, uh, a tension that's going to be basically subliminal in the audience's minds that pulls them through the the otherwise you know moments that might otherwise be mucky or or boring or dull. That you always have, like, well, the secondary tension is that he's going to, he, he needs to, you know, score points with Dana. So when you're not seeing any ghosts, that's what's going. That's the drama. Yeah. <laughs> and what's funny is that for Peter Venkman, it's probably the reverse. Like his primary concern is, you know, scoring yes. with Dana and not busting yeah. ghosts. But... Exactly, and that's why it's a, it's a funny. He's a, such a comic character because yeah. He, yeah, Dean Yeager was right. He regards science as a dodge or a hustle. Um, and he's, he's just using it, like you guys, you know, astutely pointed out. He's just using it to get girls. Yeah. Well, it's funny, it's funny too because after Ray tells him, "Though this is the last of the petty cash," uh, he has this defeated look on his face, and <laughs> something that always was like going past me: how many times that Peter Venkman is put in his place in this movie. I guess growing up watching this movie, I always took it as like Peter Venkman was like so slick and so sly he could get himself out of any situation. But rewatching it now, I've seen. That's not the case. In fact, he's he seems to be a very he doesn't use his words to do it. You know, like Bill Murray's just kind of like has this like shoulders down. He just kind of like deflates and just kind of like stares off into the distance. And that happens right here when Ray says, "Hey, this is the last of the petty cash." Yeah, I'm having a hard time actually thinking about any time that he does win. You know, like his whole plan about getting Ray to you know mortgage his house and everything totally blows up in his face. Mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time like trying to remember. Um, the points where things did work out for him, actually. Yeah, Which yeah. I know, I'm just, I'm just drawing a blank, but. No, he's so. just a master of perseverance. You're absolutely right, and he, yeah. he's often, you know, I think, you know, in Ghostbusters too, they kind of paint him as like, the, the guy who is his own worst enemy, but, um, in this one, he's really, you know, sort of a almost Frank Capra, level optimist. Whenever he, uh, Peter is leaving Dana's apartment, uh, and Mark, you could probably correct me if I'm wrong here. Um. Mm -hmm. 
he uh, it cuts before he says "what a woman," which I think is what he said to Lewis as he was passing him by. And for whatever reason, they they cut the line out. But uh, <laughs> and I actually think it works a little bit better if Lewis is just standing there, completely awkward. I'm but, kind of uh, glad there's there's yeah. no interaction between them in the hallway because it's such an awkward scene. I mean, it's it's shot so well because you've got you know Peter there on the left hand side of the frame, and then like. You know he's he's staring down after the the door closes and he's got the, whatever that device is is just like pointed down towards the floor in almost like a Freudian type manner and then <laughs> yes. and then you have like Lewis comes out immediately locks his door realizes what's going on and spins around and just kind of faces <laughs> the door so he doesn't have to look at Peter Venkman as he walks by and I, I feel myself like I've been in that situation several times at the Lewis <laughs> situation but um. Uh, yeah, the the blocking for that scene is there's no real dialogue there, and I'm glad they left it like that because yeah. it's, it's it's quite it yeah, yeah, you guys are right. I mean, it's amazing also how these actors elevated the shooting script because in the in the shooting script, it does say you know Peter walks by, ignores ignores um, Lewis, um, and then there's a whole nother bit in the shooting script where Lewis sees his own newspaper across the hall. And he's like trying to hold his door open with his foot and then reach out to grab the newspaper. <laughs> and like, you know, Rick Moranis just has an expression on his face of utter terror that yeah. it wasn't Dana and they didn't need to do anything else. He's yeah. so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny because we were, we're noticing earlier that he's kind of, in the same way that Holtzman kind of was in the 2016 movie, is the, the way that Rick Moranis is playing this character, it's it's almost from a different movie, you know? Like, his, it's not totally slapstick, and I'm glad that they left the slapstick stuff out, like him holding the door open with his foot and reaching for a newspaper, that that would, mm-hmm. it, it would just be a little bit too much, you know? Like, yeah. Lewis, so the, 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 um, the, the commerce of that character is almost just the awkwardness of him. They, that's all you need. Right. And I think in, in, a, in a movie, like, in any comedy... In, for my taste, the 80s comedies were kind of the best because the central characters were generally more grounded, and you could, the, the more, uh, the farther from the central character the other characters were, the more you know, broad they could be. Right. You know, it wasn't like Ace Ventura, who is like the central character is the most broad, you know. Uh, yeah. So they're more believable, more grounded, I guess. And that was kind of like the the '90s comedies. The you know, there's something about Mary, the Ace Ventura, Pet Detectives, like you said. That's where the the characters kind of became more outlandish, and the rest of the world became normal around them. So it was kind of the inverse of, of what you were talking about in the '80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what happens with you know cycles of any anything. You know, people get tired of one thing, they move to another thing, and then they then they get nostalgic for the thing they used to have. You know, something else I really uh, like about this minute is so we've seen Janine being just completely deadpan, bored, looks like she just does not want to be there, and here she is as soon as she gets the call. You know, she screams, we got one, and she's part of the team. It seems like she's got an interest in all mm-hmm. of this, which I think is really cool. I think it's a cool touch that they, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Something in any that. pots, you're right. She plays it so well. She plays mm-hmm. this earnest, you do? You have? And she's, yeah. oh, Janine, I want to <laughs> I want to be friends with Janine. Yeah. <laughs> at this <laughs> moment. I have a slight little bit of trivia. It's funny we brought up Jim Carrey a second ago because apparently the firehouse interior, which is in Los Angeles, uh, was also used as uh, a set in The Mask, the Jim Carrey oh. movie. It's a mechanic shop in that. So, But that is all the trivia I have <laughs> for this <laughs> minute. You know, It's, uh, yeah. Have you guys talked about uh, Dana's building yet? Um. We've talked a little bit about it, but we're always open to talk about it some more. What, what do just, you have about it? Oh, uh, just the location, like um, 
uh, I went to New York, uh, I don't know how many years ago now, and like, did like a little Ghostbusters, uh, you know, pilgrimage. And so, 55 Central Park West, I went, you know, and saw the build, the outside of the building. I didn't go in. Um, next to the Holy Lutheran Church, and right. it's across the street from Tavern on the Green in Central Park, which is, you know, yeah. it, it makes location sense in the movie, too. You know, he oh, wow. huh. went across the street, and there's Tavern on the Green. That's a restaurant uh, with the glass windows. Um, so I think it was, you know, people see this as a New York movie, and I think they made sure that New Yorkers wouldn't say, oh, that's not, <laughs> Tavern on the Green isn't, you know, yeah. this place, it's over here. I never thought about that. He really, when he runs across the street and hops over the fence or whatever, that's legitimate. Like mm -hmm. he is heading right for it. Oh, that's really cool. I never thought about that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like like you said, I mean, this is like when my when I think about New York movies, this is the first one my brain goes to. It's probably most people. You know, it's it's New York is almost like a character in the movie. You know, the last line of the movie is I love this town. You know, so yeah. it's it, it's great that they would take the time and the, and the care to to have it match up to, you know, because so many New Yorkers were going to see this movie. If Tavern on the Green's a three-hour run the other way, they would only be thinking, you know, oh, come on, that dude can't get, you know, that far. <laughs> that what did he take, the, the subway? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can't do that. That's the F train. He, he would have taken the E, you know. I was uh, kind of disappointed. The other night I was reading an article that um, we should really post a link to where Ivan Reitman is talking about the interiors of the firehouse, uh, because, you know, everybody knows they didn't shoot the interiors in the same building. Um, and he's talking about a few other locations, and, and he mentions how, I don't know, a whole lot of the film was shot in New York. And there was some of that that really bummed me out. But, yeah. uh, no, they only did, like, three or four weeks in New York. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's typical of filmmaking, you know. Yeah, yeah, you gotta go with the you know the budget suits it. I, I heard sure somebody is. say if you want to get your movie produced, the first line of your movie needs to be fade in tax incentive state. So yeah, Canada. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> used to be Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. Not, not so much at the moment. Uh, there's a couple of things that are still sticking around, but uh, a lot of people we know who are in the film industry here in Louisiana have uh, moved on to the greener pastures of Atlanta. So, mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's a runaway production for you. So. Yeah. Well, guys, do y'all have anything else for this minute? Uh, there's one more. It's yeah. just, there's a cut scene in this minute that you guys, um, you guys have mentioned the ones on the DVD before, and this is one that just came up for in this minute. It would have been between the Chinese takeout and the phone call. You have that honeymooner scene. So it's this scene where like you you go to like a hotel the uh room and it's you hear through the door you're you're like in the hallway at first you hear through the door like the aftermath of you know honeymoon sex basically oh and it's like oh that was it you know yeah I'm glad it, it's like a joke <laughs> and um and they're like the groom let's the bride and groom are like both disappointed and like this is how it is and <laughs> and he, he he gets up and goes to the bathroom after like his alarm clock mysteriously breaks and he blames it on his wife. And he, goes, he goes to the bathroom and she hears like this hacking coughing like a cat like you know coughing up a hairball and then it becomes a lot more like ten cats coughing up a hairball I think is how it's even described in the script and she's like are you okay and she runs in the bathroom and she's like oh my god it smells <laughs> and they both run out like screaming because it it was Slimer in there, but they don't show Slimer in the cutscene. It's like but you can see stuff. like the green light projected yes. out of the bathroom onto them. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and it's, I can see why they cut it out. I mean, it, it interrupts it disrupts the flow, and I didn't. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. 
Agreed. Yeah, do they you, didn't need it. Do you, do you guys like it better where they just show up and Slimer is just there okay. in a hallway? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Awesome. Yeah, we don't need them calling the hotel operator to, to call the Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how do we know that they got the phone call? <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, if that's everything y'all have for this minute, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. Uh, Brady, Mark, thank you so much for, for being here today. Uh, I'm Kyle, and I'm here to re- we're here, all here to remind you that uh, death is but a door, time a window. We'll be back. Ghostbusters Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a patron of Ghostbusters Minute and gain access to exclusive weekly bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash gbminute. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at GhostbustersMinute at gmail.com and visit us online at GhostbustersMinute.com, Facebook.com slash GhostbustersMinute, Twitter.com slash GBMinute, and look us up on Instagram at GhostbustersMinute. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Audionautics, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License.